be sitting. Our text for preaching this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. You can find it on page 833 in the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you. Uh, nearing the end of this first book in the New Testament, uh, we have uh, been in Matthew for uh, quite a long time now, and we've actually been in uh, the final uh, night of the life of Jesus for quite a long time now. Uh, and we continue uh, going bit by bit through uh, Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we've seen a big change from those sermons, I feel like forever ago, on the second coming of Jesus, right? Uh, those, uh, we transitioned out of those at the end of chapter 25. Uh, and now we're in the final section in our study of uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, where we see the descent of Jesus uh, and the whittling away of everybody else as he goes by himself uh, to the cross. All of these passages are familiar to us, but I wonder how often you have studied them slowly uh, and in depth like this. I hope it continues to, to show us uh, who our Savior is, what He has accomplished, what He bears uh, on our behalf. So we pick up at verse uh, 47 of chapter 26. Jesus has been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has uh, finished His prayers. He's woken His guys up uh, again. Uh, and he's uh, told them uh, that they're going to rest later on. And he has predicted his betrayer is at hand. We pick up at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, weekend and Week out, in these chapters, we see how your own disciples failed you. We come this morning to your text in weakness and in failure. Lord, we come to you confessing, maybe we've shut up this morning looking for a couple of helpful insights. And Lord, we renounce that and pray instead as needy, failing disciples, that we need to see Jesus, 
and all His glory and all His power and all His sufficiency and all His grace today. I pray, O Lord, by the power of Your Spirit, uh, You would show us Christ. You would open our hearts to forget about ourselves and in Him believe and trust this very hour. In His name we pray. Amen. In the movies, when there's a ship sailing on the open sea and it has a wreck or gets caught in a storm and begins to sink, uh, a number of things start to happen, right? There's a rush on this ship to go find a lifeboat. There's chaos and clamoring to escape the sinking ship. And there's, you know, the, the, the famous line, right, women and children first. And there's usually the guy character that doesn't want to do that and tries to get on his own lifeboat. Uh, there's the, the, the fights between the different levels of deck and the different classes and there's passengers and there's sailors and there's running around and there's chaos on board this ship trying to get off, trying to get safe in those last couple minutes before it goes down. But there's one place on the sinking ship that's not chaotic. That's the mind of the captain. Ultimately, in all these movies, the camera will eventually find the captain. And what do we know of a captain on a sinking ship? The captain goes down with the ship. Everywhere else there's chaos. But usually on the captain's face is calmness. There's a determination. There's a resoluteness on the face of a captain of a sinking ship. Because he knows everyone else is fleeing for their life. but He's going down with the ship. What we see... In chapter 26 of Matthew is lots of chaos around Jesus. (laughs) Lots of people running away. Lots of people drawing swords. Lots of people falling asleep. Lots of people promising they'll never fall asleep. But there's one guy, there's one person, and that's our Lord. And when Matthew takes the camera off of the chaos of everything else and puts it on Jesus, we see a resolute face. We see a captain who is ready to go all the way to the end and go down with the ship. Can you imagine a sinking ship and what one of those those conversations must have been like with that captain? Maybe some passengers he'd gotten to know along the way who are about to get on a lifeboat and they come speak to the captain. They beg him, come with us. Let's get out of here, right? Maybe some of his top uh, lieutenants or sailors say they want to stay with him. We'll stay with him till the end. And he says, no, you go. The captain goes down with the ship. Imagine those sort of final goodbyes. What we have in our verses are three final goodbyes. It's the last time Jesus is going to speak to Judas. It's the last time Jesus is going to speak to Peter. It's the last time Jesus is going to speak to the crowds. And as Jesus gives his final goodbyes, we see the resolve of the man, the God-man, who will love his own to the very end. Matthew's doing this. Everyone else is fleeing and peeling away, so only Jesus is left. What I want you to see this morning is that in Christ's final goodbyes, we see his resolve to love his own to the very end. In the final goodbyes of Jesus, we see his resolve, his determination to love his own to the very end. 
Jesus speaks for a final time. Those are going to be our three points. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, to Judas. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, that's Peter. Verse 55, Jesus said to the crowds. Here are our three goodbyes. Simple heading, saying goodbye to Jesus, saying goodbye to Peter, saying goodbye to the crowds. First, Judas, verses 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came. So Jesus has been laboring with his father in prayer, and the other disciples have been sleeping. Now, uh, Bible scholars have tried to stitch together all these accounts with uh, Mark and Luke and John to figure out exactly what time is this going on. Uh, a, a good guess is that we're, so we've just turned past midnight into a new day, and that this is probably the, the wee hours of Friday morning. Right? This is after midnight. We've gone from Thursday to Friday. It's dark. People are sleepy. These final goodbyes on this final day in the life of Jesus. They're still in the garden. A crowd arrives, but Matthew doesn't highlight the crowd. He highlights Judas. He tells us Judas came, one of the twelve. And you're thinking, this is the 79th sermon in Matthew. I think I know who Judas is by now, right? What's Matthew doing? He's reminding us one more time. He's one of the twelve. He's not an add-on. He's not a late arriver. He's not a tier two, right? He's not in the outer circle. He's One of the twelve. He's reminding us, as he keeps doing along the way, just how bad this betrayal is. Just how deeply Jesus was betrayed by one who he loved and trusted. Judas has made his plan. He has gotten paid by the leaders. He's brought the crowd from the Jewish leaders with him to arrest Jesus. There's just one problem. Apparently, a lot of them don't know what Jesus looks like. And it's dark, and you've got torches, and so it's hard to, to spot someone in the crowd. Right? They, don't have a, they don't have viral videos of Jesus healing people. that They know what he looks like. So Judas has a plan. He'll identify Jesus. Lots of ways to identify a face in the crowd, right? They could have showed up, and he could have said, well, there he is over there. He could have said, hi, Jesus. The guy that looks up, that's your man. But he comes up with a foul plan. He's going... To kiss Jesus. It sounds weird to us. If you've been to another country, you maybe know what this is like. It's still awkward. I've traveled overseas and greeted somebody with a kiss, and it's just, it's kind of awkward. You know, what side do you go on, right? Do you go in or not, or whatever? They know what a, this kiss is. It's a greeting of friendship. It's a greeting of respect. It's a, you know, giving someone the bro hug, right? You know, kind of like give them five and tap them on the back and sort of, I love you, man, right? This isn't a formal stiff greeting. This is Judas, the very physical symbol of friendship and honor and respect is the means by which he signifies, here's your guy to arrest and kill. He even calls him rabbi. I mean, what irony. Again, a term of respect, greeting. The hypocrisy is so thick, you can cut it like a knife in this scene. Jesus has a word of resolve. We're going to see that in each of his three goodbyes. But he also has, first, a word of rebuke. He rebukes all three of these people. Every every goodbye is a rebuke, followed by his resolve. A word of rebuke here for Judas, it's one word, and it's the word friend. You're going to greet me like a friend? I'll call you a friend. 
Can you imagine? Judas is going to come to regret this decision. We'll see that in two weeks. I wonder if this is like a gut punch when Jesus says friend to him. He knows, Jesus knows. They had that moment two weeks ago in the upper room. And what a word that Jesus chooses. He uses it two other times. The word friend, this particular version of the word friend, both in parables and both the first word of a rebuke. Remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard? The guys work all day and they get paid, but the guys who showed up late just get a little bit. Remember those guys? Well, the guys that worked all day, they grumble to Jesus that they're not getting more. And Jesus' first words to the grumbling, self-righteous men, friends. The other time we see it used is the parable of the wedding feast where the master invites everyone to come to the feast. And they're all there, the riffraff of society, everybody's there except one guy is not wearing the wedding garment. And the master says to him, friend, where are your clothes? Why are you not dressed right? You see, Jesus, the master of language, using this word friend that seems to connote closeness and approval and friendship as a word of rebuke. It, it, it is filled with sadness, isn't it? It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm a friend of sinners. You don't call me friend. For Judas, it's a reminder of past times, of their years together. It's a word, even when our Lord rebukes, is tinged with sadness. It's a reminder that those who are not friends with Jesus is not because of a fault with Christ. He is the friend of sinners. If you don't call him friend, it's not his fault. It's almost as if even in this last moment, there's still a chance for Judas to turn. But then Jesus gets to his word of resolve. Friend, do what you came to do. Apparently the translation of these couple words is difficult. Uh, Maybe your Bible has a different translation. says Jesus also could have said, uh, why are you here? Is it a statement, friend, do what you came to do? Is it a question, what are you here to do? Uh, is it a command, just get it over with, Judas? It, it, it's unclear. What is clear, though, is that Jesus knows exactly why Judas is there. And what he doesn't do is try to get out of it. He doesn't do what I would have done, which is shove Judas and run away, right? <laughs> he doesn't resist. He doesn't accuse. He doesn't retaliate. In fact, he encourages Judas. Do it. Get it over with. I'm thinking as I'm reading this, is this the same Jesus we saw last week who is praying for his father, to his father, not to drink the cup of his wrath? And all of a sudden this week, he sees the guy come up. He's like, let's go. Now's the time. Let's do it. The, The anguish of that prayer in The garden has been replaced by resolve and determination. He has met in his lowest point, in his deepest test with his father, and he has come out resolved. This is my father's will. We're going to do it. I will accomplish it. That's a key word for here. A key word for us here is resolve. Sort of, you know the word like a resolution? Like a New Year's resolution. I mean, we're in what, October 1st? Does anybody even remember what yours were, right? I'm not even going to ask you if you're still doing them because I know you're not, right? 
Uh, who doesn't do their resolutions? Everybody in chapter 26 except Jesus. These guys knew your resolution was, we'll stand with you. That lasts like an hour, right? But Jesus resolves and determines to go to the end. The prophet Isaiah describes it like this. Isaiah 50, verse 7. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, like a rock. My face is unchanging. He is determined to go all the way. He knows everything that's going to come. He knows the worst of it, this betrayal. He knows Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He knows every word of the prophecies, and yet he sets his face like flint. He is determined. He is resolved. And nothing can turn him aside. Judas, do what you came to do. The rest of verse 50 might not seem all that surprising. It should be. Look what the verse says. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. There's an account of King David back before he was king in the Old Testament. And Saul was king. Saul is a bad guy at this point, and David knows he's supposed to be king, and he has this opportunity to just go kill Saul, and he can become king. And all David's guys are like, go do it, man. He's right there. Like, just go take it. Go take him. And David says famously to his men, the Lord forbid that I should go do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Not even King David would touch the sinful Lord's anointed uh, in violence. But here, the crowds led by Judas seem to have no qualms to lay their hands on the anointed Son of God and arrest Him. Even in this wickedness, even in this rebellion, even in this evil, we see they are just doing the words of Jesus. Do what you came to do. Jesus remains in sovereign control every step of the way. His death is his own choice. He lays it down of his own accord. No one takes it from him. He's not caught in a trap he can't get out of. He's not stuck. He hasn't been tricked. His final goodbye, his final word of rebuke and resolve to Judas shows us he is in sovereign control to the very end. Saying goodbye to an enemy who has betrayed you is one thing. What about saying goodbye to a friend? That's what I want you to see second in our passage. The resolve of Jesus to love his own to the end is highlighted secondly in how he says goodbye to Peter. Verses 51 to 54. Now, Peter's name doesn't appear here, does it? We don't see the name of Peter. But if you didn't know this story, and if I were to tell you, hey, guess which one of the 12 disciples will pull out a sword and cut off somebody's ear? Who would you guess that would be? <laughs> Peter, right? Uh, we learn from other gospel authors. It is Peter, uh, but your guess is accurate, right? Uh, who is courageous and impulsive, right? Who is brave and foolhardy? Who says he'll stay awake no matter what and falls asleep a couple hours later? <laughs> Peter, uh, maybe he is the one who we would describe in our day and time as ready fire, aim, right? (laughs) Some of you are like that. 
That's Peter uh, in this moment. Uh, He's thinking, now is the time. Now is when Jesus needs me. Now he's going to pull out the sword. Now he's going to usher in the physical kingdom. The nationalistic Messiah needs his chief lieutenant to fight the battle for him. Now just imagine for a moment at this point, uh, Jesus says, all right, Peter, you got it. This is what I've been teaching the last three years. Let's go. And Christianity turns and it follows Peter's version of Christianity. And maybe they win and fight their way out of the garden. Maybe they win a couple more months and a couple more years. What will eventually happen? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Jesus has a word of rebuke for Peter. That word of rebuke is simple. Put your sword away. Put your sword back. What's wrong with a sword? What's wrong with Peter accomplishing the mission this way? I mean... Wouldn't we all want to see Jesus live a little bit longer, right? Peter's sword has two problems. Number one, it's poisonous. He uses it, it's going to bring death right back on his head. The the first rebuke of Jesus, it's almost a proverb. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Yeah, you might win today, but another bigger, stronger sword's coming and you will die by the sword. You live this way, you will die this way. Violence breeds more violence. We see this with every king in the Old Testament who would accomplish victory for his kingdom by the sword. What would happen? Eventually, somebody else comes up with a bigger army and a better sword. But it's not just that the sword is poisonous. By drawing it out, he brings poison back upon himself. Even more, verse 53, what's wrong with the sword? It's pathetic. It's pathetic. Does Jesus need one sword wielded by a fisherman of all people, right? (laughs) Or could he have his father send him 12 legions of of, of battle-hardened angels from heaven to defend him? Legions are a lot, right? A legion, a max legion has like 6,000 people in it, 6,000 soldiers. So you do the math, 12 times 6,000, a lot of soldiers, right? A lot of heavenly sword bearers at his defense. Reminds you that story in the Old Testament with Elisha and the servant. Remember that? And the servant's scared, surrounded by the earthly armies. And Elisha prays the guy would open the servant's eyes, and his eyes are opened, and he sees the mountains are full of horses and chariots of fire. Yeah, Peter, your little sword is kind of pathetic. This rebuke of Jesus towards Peter is not a Bible verse about pacifism. This isn't a Bible verse about thinking through national policy of warfare. It's not a Bible verse for or against just war theory. It's not a Bible verse about whether Christians can serve in the military or whether they should serve in the military. It has been misused for all of those reasons. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. This is not a nationalistic purpose. He's not fighting for a certain nation or a certain people. Jesus is answering and rebuking Peter around the mission of his own kingdom. And our Lord's kingdom is not won or lost with a physical sword. What will he say in John's gospel? My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So violence in defense of Jesus is unjustified. We're not talking about nations. We're not talking about individuals. We're talking about the church. We're talking about the kingdom of God, the mission of Jesus, the spiritual kingdom of proclaiming life through faith in Christ to the very ends of the earth. There's no physical swords in that. There's no national armies in defending the cause of Christ. Rather, look how Jesus resolves to receive the sword. Not to bear it, but to be on the other end of it. Verse 54 is his word of resolve. How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Jesus is saying, Peter, I could ask my father and he'd send me 72,000 heavenly soldiers. But I won't. Because Scripture must be fulfilled. This is the must, theologians call this, of divine necessity. Jesus is not sort of bound by some control outside of his own or outside of his father, but rather this is the mission and the purpose for which, for which his father has sent him. I mean, you wonder every sailor, every lieutenant that gets promoted to captain celebrates and is and happy and proud about their new ship. And then maybe in the back of their mind, they're thinking, yeah, I've heard the captain goes down with the ship, but yeah, I'll think about that later, right? And they go sailing and they're caught in a storm and they think, yeah, I hope this storm doesn't get us because I'm stuck on the ship, right? What happens when The rubber meets the road when push comes to shove, right? What happens in that moment when the ship is actually going down? Is a resolve still there? It is for Jesus. It must be so. What the scriptures have prophesied must take place. That means the seed spoken of in Genesis chapter 3 must be bruised. That means the lamb of Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, must be sacrificed. It means the servant of Isaiah must suffer. It means the cup of God's wrath from the Psalms must be drunk to the very bottom. God's plan to redeem a people by sending a sacrifice must happen. And Jesus knows it. Peter, your sword is getting in the way. It's not time to fight. It's time to die. Do you see the two different types of courage in this passage? You've heard this before, right? What happens when you get scared or you get a little adrenaline rush or somebody surprises you right on the road is fight or flight, right? right? Some of you bow up and you want to fight. Others, you just take off running, right? You want to flee, right? Well, Peter shows us fight, doesn't he? Pulls out the sword, he's he's scared, he's been approached, he wants to fight. And he also shows us flight, right? Because that doesn't work, he runs away with everybody else at the end. You notice what Jesus does? He doesn't fight and he doesn't run. In the face of a betrayal, arrest, and death, he shows restraint. He knows help is available Yet he refuses to use it. 
Sure, Peter and the disciples could use their swords. I guess that would work a little bit. Or we could get all those 12 legions from heaven, and that would definitely work. But he shows restraint and resolve because Scripture must be fulfilled. There's a little bit in here for us. It's, all, it's mostly about, it's all about Jesus. But there's a little bit, a little bit here for us in the reminder of the place of suffering in the life of Christian discipleship. That we follow a Savior who right now doesn't fight, but he doesn't flee. He remains to suffer. And there's a pathway laid out that prepares us for what we experience in the Christian life. For we don't fight, but we don't flee. We stand to suffer. We read in Revelation verse 13, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. How much do you want to fight? How much do you want to flee? We're called to stand and endure. Peter, because of the grace and mercy of our Lord, We'll learn this lesson eventually. This is the last time Jesus will speak to him before his death. But in incredible kindness, he forgives Peter later on. And he restores him. And Peter suffers, and as tradition tells us, dies on behalf of Jesus. For now, though, it's goodbye to Peter. And then a final character comes in. Our final character are the crowds. You will be excused for not remembering this, but as we've gone through Matthew now for a year and a half, we've seen the crowds over and over again. You just go a little search in your concordance and crowds pops up dozens of times. Sometimes they love Jesus. Sometimes they hate Him. Sometimes they're cheering for Him. Sometimes they're booing Him. Right? Sometimes they love His miracles. Sometimes they want more than His miracles. Sometimes they want nothing to do with Him. The crowds, amongst many other things, are fickle. We're going to see the crowds talk in a couple chapters to Pilate, but this is the last time Jesus will speak to the crowds. And what does he have for them? A word of rebuke and a word of resolve. His rebuke first to the crowds. He mocks them. He mocks them. He says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He says, swords and clubs? Are y'all serious right now? That's what you were bringing out to capture me? I've been in the temple every day, just sitting there. I don't have a sword. I don't have a club. I don't have anything. And you come out at night with a bunch of people in swords and clubs to arrest me? Are are y'all kidding? Because this does not tell us anything about Jesus, that they show up like this. It tells us all about them, though, doesn't it? And I think I can say this because I think Jesus would say this. This is a bunch of cowards. It's a bunch of cowards in a crowd showing up together to arrest Jesus. But, here's his word of resolve. As ridiculous as this whole scene is, as the fake friendship of Judas, as the the pretend strength of this crowd when Jesus has the angel, the host of heaven at his disposal, 
And as they come out with their clubs and their swords to arrest a peaceful man, he is resolved. Verse 56, but this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In particular, Jesus is here treated like a robber. He is treated like a common thief. We already seen in God, the eternal son, descending to take the form of a man, that great humiliation. And he takes the form of a servant. And he goes all the way to the cross and the grave. And to add insult to injury, he's treated here in his arrest like a robber, like a thief. As Isaiah 53 says, they made his grave with the wicked and he was numbered with the transgressors. The resolve of our Lord at the very end to be treated like a common criminal. Insult added to injury. Now, I don't know if the crowd hears the rebuke. Crowds act weird, don't they? There's this idea of group think, where there's individuals in a crowd, but over uh, their experience, they all begin to think the same. One of them thinks, you know, maybe Jesus is right, but I guess they all have clubs, and so I'm going to get my club too, right? Another guy thinks, I don't know that we should be arresting the Messiah, but I guess everybody else is doing it, so I'll go along with them, right? How much group think happens in the 21st century as the crowds reject the message of our Lord? And I wonder if you're here today, and you've rejected the message of Jesus, have you actually really considered it? Or are you just guilty of groupthink? I mean, he's mocked uh, in the culture. He's mocked by the important people. He's mocked in media and Hollywood and in sports. He's mocked in all... So it must be true, right? I invite you to take a moment. To, I don't know if these men in the crowds took a moment. Think, wait a second. What does Jesus mean, but this has to be fulfilled? You don't have to think like the crowd. You don't have to think like the group. In fact, it's the wide path that leads to destruction. The narrow gate is life. It's my prayer today that his final goodbye to the crowd is not a goodbye to you. And that you would come and turn from their foolishness and find in Jesus the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And believing in him, you would go with him unto eternal life. We have a final, final goodbye in the last verse. There's actually no goodbye at all. The disciples just leave. All of them. To the last man, they flee. Everybody leaves Jesus. And just to be clear, those who are leaving Jesus are the very people he's resolved to die in order to save. Talk about testing your resolve, right? He, all he sees of the people he's come to save are their backs as they run away from him. And yet, our Lord is resolved to redeem and nothing can stop him. Paul tells us in Romans, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come. 
Not powers, not height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God. Not fighting when it's not time to fight or fleeing when it's not time to flee. Not falling asleep or falling away. Not our sin or our shame or our guilt. None of it is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Everyone flees, but the captain goes down with the ship. He alone remains. He is resolved. And he will love his own, you and me, to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, there is no hope in these verses for our own strength. But there is bucket loads of hope for those who cast their hope upon Jesus. Lord, we are a sinful people. We fight and we flee and we fall away and we fall asleep. But you don't do any of that. We praise you, our Father, that you sent a Son with such resolve to set his face like flint and love us unto the very end. Lord, help us forget ourselves today and set our eyes upon Jesus, the Savior and friend of sinners, in whose name we pray.